Hello, and welcome to Humans of CS106A. I'm your co-host, Jacob, and today we're going to be doing an episode with one of our section leaders, Lisa Einstein. The full interview is going to play after this, but first, I just wanted to give a short highlight. One thing that people in tech sometimes struggle with is the role that the technology they make plays in society. Listen to Lisa talk about what role in society she decided to focus on. That was the thing that was really bothering me was I, I didn't understand what larger issue I was serving yet. I think I really believe in dance as a, in its place in the world, but I didn't feel like I was using all of my skill sets and bringing them all to the table in what I wanted to build with my life. So um, I re was reading a lot and thinking a lot about how people spend their lives. And um, I kind of, reflected deep in my heart on what I cared about the most and if there was any issue I could impact that didn't have my name attached to it, uh, it would be girls' education. And Everyone has something that motivates them. And in tech, you have the opportunity to channel that. You know, you build real products which can impact people's lives. Whether it's like a new social network like TikTok or the control software for a ventilator which could be keeping someone alive. Listen on to hear our host, Patricia, chat with Lisa about her life and how coding and tech has given her the opportunity to have an impact on the world. Hi everyone, my name is Patricia and I am a section leader for Humans of Code in Place. I was having a conversation with a student one day and after that conversation, I took a step back and reflected on how grateful I am that I get to be part of this community. I mean, the fact that thousands of us from all over the world, from different walks of life, came together just for the joy and love of learning and trying something new. I think that's beautiful. And it got me thinking about what are all the amazing, incredible stories we have in this community? I believe that every person has a meaningful story to tell. And I really wanted a way for us to share these stories with each other a way for us to learn from each other, be inspired with each other, laugh together, smile together, things like that. And so just seeing all of you learn how to code and try something for the first time made me want to try something for, for the first time too. And that's why I decided to create this podcast. So yes, this is something that I've never done before, but I'm really excited about it. And I know that there's going to be a lot of learning that's happening along the way. For our first episode, I decided to interview Lisa Einstein. Lisa is a member of the administrative team for Code in Place and also a section leader. She is doing amazing work when it comes to education and computer science. She is currently a master's student at Stanford, where she is pursuing a dual master's in international policy and computer science. I had the chance to sit down and talk with her, and I hope you'll enjoy what she has to say. I will also give a word of caution. Um, this probably isn't like most of the podcasts you listen to, and that's because I'm really new to this. And so I hope 
as you continue listening to future episodes, you'll get to learn more of the stories of the people in our community, but hopefully you'll also get to see the improvement of this podcast as we continue to grow. And I think that's the beauty of it. Put yourself out there, make mistakes, but more importantly, learn a lot and make a lot of new friends and meaningful connections along the way. So I hope you enjoy. So Lisa, I would love for you to just, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, well, you just did a good start. <laughs> uh, so I guess in addition to the things that you just said, um, I'll just share that the thing that really brought me to computer science was a real love of teaching and a love of building and the beautiful community that Stanford has around learning computer science. It's just really infectious and it infected me and I want to infect others with it. That's awesome. How did you get into computer science in the first place? Hmm. Well, my first exposure was when I was an undergraduate at Princeton. I was actually a physics major, not a computer science major, but we had to do some coding. And my experience was that it seemed like everyone around me just knew how to code. I think partly because I was in a hard science, a lot of my peers had taken coding in high school and I didn't have any access to coding in high school. And so because of that, I felt very frustrated. I didn't find it exciting or interesting. I was just like, this is so unfair that we're expected to do a physics problem set with coding, but I've never coded before. And so I actually just found it really frustrating, though I did find it exciting when it finally worked. I think everyone has had that experience. But I sort of just got through whatever coding I had to do to get through that degree and then was like, okay, I'm done. But then when I was in Guinea, um, I started to get interested in the types of things you could build with computers. I was in a village where there was pretty much, um, I, I never saw a computer. I, there, there was no electricity or running water in the village where I was living. And um, I was teaching in, you know, a very um, minimalistic environment, just me and Chalk and a bunch of awesome students. And the students started expressing interest in learning about computers. And we didn't have a, a technology room or access to those things, but over time, at first I was really resistant to bringing computers because I'd read all the horror stories of, you know, one laptop per child and how it hadn't ended up really supporting communities. If you haven't heard about that, I think I recommend looking into it. It was sort of a, an example of a, um, I guess, development, idea that didn't fully take into account local communities and so it didn't end up I think the research in general had the the general consensus is that it was sort of a, a failed intervention if you want to call something an intervention I think I have a problem with that word too but anyway because it was really coming from students I over to after like two almost the whole two years had passed my students and I ended up fundraising to build a computer lab for them and they got really into it and we reached out to people and told them why this would be impactful. And then we, we built it and had um, this solar powered little computer, I guess, uh, room or shack. I guess. It was really just like a wooden room with solar panels and 10 laptops and two desktops. And we started learning computers and it was super fun and 
they wanted they expressed wanting to learn like how these things worked and how to code and I was like oh I kind of remember some coding and then um, started trying to teach them a little coding and then got really excited about learning more myself and sharing it with them especially because uh, I had this sort of long-term idea that this possibly could help some of them get jobs especially I was excited about some of the girls that didn't have access to opportunities for good for good jobs and if they could learn and I was really surprised not surprised but I was just like amazed at how fast they learned it because I had found it so hard to learn in the beginning especially some of the students were just kind of like really really into it so when I got I was leaving soon for Stanford but I kind of committed to going back and working and those students and I started in a small NGO I really just coordinate it and they run it they're you know living there and working all the time they're doing a ton of awesome stuff for COVID I'm happy to <laughs> be excited about them and talk to you about that um, but when I got to Stanford I sort of committed to reaching out to people to finding someone on campus that could help me help them learn to code <laughs> and I went on a mission this is becoming very long I'll I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll try to go a little, a little quicker but I, made, I was doing international policy because I had I you know had been engaged kind of in international diplomacy sort of as a Peace Corps volunteer and I really wanted to understand the higher level ideas around the way countries interact with each other but I knew Stanford one of the reasons I chose Stanford was because I knew they had this amazing computer science program and so I made a list of I actually did a directed reading which is a class you organize for yourself and I made a list of you know 10 to 15 professors I would talk to about this project and try and learn from them what I could how I could make it better and how I could support my students more effectively and uh, on that list was someone in the engineering department who when I met with them they said you know I can't really help you I was actually like a really <laughs> discouraging conversation in a lot of ways because I was like you know, you, you never know when you make these lists of people, like which ones you're going to hit it off with and which ones are just going to be total flops. So it was like a five minute conversation. They were very busy, but they're like, you know what? You've got to talk to Chris Teach. And, <laughs> you know, like, I'm not the person you want to talk to. You have to talk to Chris Teach. And that was actually, it wasn't a flop because meeting Chris like totally changed my life at Stanford and I think changed the, li the lives of a lot of my students because when we met, he said also like, oh, do you have 15 minutes? I was like, oh man, that's gonna be the same thing as last time. Like, <laughs> just gonna tell me that he has nothing to help and this is just like a total flop. But then when we met, we talked for like an hour and a half and we couldn't stop talking and we got super excited to work together. And he and I worked together to translate um, the CS Bridge, which is um, pre-code in place. There was this summer program called CS Bridge. It still is existing, sorry. It was uh, run by Nick McEwen and a bunch of other awesome uh, faculty and volunteers where every summer there's um, CS, intro CS taught in multiple countries around the world. And so we translated that curriculum to do a camp in the tech room in Guinea where I had lived. And I went back to Guinea last summer. I got some funding from Stanford to do it and ran this camp. And it was all offline. Most of these things are online, right? Like everything we're doing is coded places online, but you can, uh, we made an offline version to do because there is no internet. I mean, you can connect to the internet with data, but it's much more expensive. So there was no reason to do that when I was going to be there. So we did this camp in French and we made all of the examples into local things. So like, I, I think, yeah, in the beginning of Code in Place, we did Carol picks up the newspaper, I think, inside of the reader. So there's no newspapers in this village. So we changed, we, my students and I worked together to change the curriculum. Some of my top students that I knew could like collaborate with me and work on it. And so that was Carol going out to get water from the well. And then 
we just sort of adapted all these little carol exercises to suit their experience. And it was just a really cool experience and very inspiring. And um, it made me really want to to improve my own skill set so that I could help them improve theirs, really. <laughs> and, and it's fun. I mean, I love learning. I love learning and sharing joy and learning and building stuff. But mostly I want to learn enough that I can help them learn enough that they can really have a life with this skill set. That, yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I would love to hear more about your experience um, in Guinea and in the Peace Corps. Like, how, did, how did you go in? What kind of work were you doing? And yeah, I would love to hear about what the organization is doing right now. Cool. So I guess I joined the Peace Corps. There's, there's a little part of my story that I haven't even brought up yet, which um, perhaps, I don't know, I always find it useful to realize that people in, in like computer science have other passions. So I have always been really passionate about dance. And when I was a, in college, I ended up having an opportunity to dance professionally. I was, Princeton's really close to New York, so I was commuting to New York to perform with a company, um, Camille Brown and Dancers. And I loved performing, I loved dancing, and I just was sort of obsessed with it. So I actually didn't have any plan after college except for going to dance. <laughs> and I was so, I was just so sort of enthralled with it. And um, also my, my dad had recently passed away and it was this, this it was this sort of ha haven for me where I could immerse myself in the present moment and deal with the grief I had from losing someone I had been very close to. And so once I actually graduated and was full-time performing or sort of living the life of a, of a freelance artist, I was sort of unsatisfied. I mean, I, I, lo I still love dancing. I, I still dance as much as I can, but I didn't understand what I was building towards in my own career. And I hadn't ever, I hadn't had to grapple with it yet because in college I had just sort of been like, okay, well, I'm, you know, trying to get this physics degree while also dancing professionally. This is crazy. I'm just going to like put my head in the ground and like, you know, try and, you know, somehow make this all work. And so once I actually had the space to really reflect, I realized that I hadn't really figured out what I wanted to do. And I did a lot of deep reflecting on what issues I cared about because I, that was the thing that was really bothering me was I, I didn't understand what larger issue I was serving yet. I think I really believe in dance as a, in its place in the world, but I didn't feel like I was using all of my skill sets to bring them up to the table in what I wanted to build with my life. So um, I was reading a lot and thinking a lot about how people spend their lives and um, I kind of reflected deep in my heart on what I cared about the most and if there was any issue I could impact that didn't have my name attached to it, uh, it would be girls' education. And I just started reading about how I could get involved with issues affecting girls' rights and girls' education. And Michelle Obama had just come out with the Let Girls Learn program, which was a, a cross-government collaboration to support adolescent girls' education around the world, including Peace Corps, which was implementing education and empowerment programs for girls. And so I applied to that. And I, they had a job teaching physics in French in West Africa. A lot of the dance I had done was based on West African dance, even though it wasn't, it wasn't really just West African, but it was 
it was infused with modern dance and West African and hip hop. And so I just thought it was perfect. And I didn't even know how perfect it would be. But when I got there, I was like, oh, my God, this is such an amazing combination of all the things that I care about and all in service of this issue I really care about. So I had an amazing experience. I got to share physics, which I loved and and felt like a good use of my skills. But I also and was actually like something the community really needed because they didn't have a physics teacher. But I also got to connect with just a huge group of the, the students I was teaching were seventh through 10th grade. And there were just 600 students that I got to connect with. And that was the more important thing was connecting with them about other stuff and working on early marriage issues and uh, helping girls feel confident about their ability to contribute to society and all the other stuff that comes from being that you get to do when you're a teacher. So while it was really fun to teach physics, it really wasn't about the physics. For me, it was about all the other stuff. And actually, fun fact, Chris Peach's dad also is a physics teacher, which um, I don't know if we've ever actually connected over that. I just remembered that the other day. I thought that was funny. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's why he grew up in, in Kenya and Malaysia. But don't quote me on that. <laughs> I guess I'm being quoted. I'm on a podcast. But yeah, I don't even remember what the question was. Did I answer it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, you asked about the Peace Corps. Yeah, I mean, every day I lived, so the Peace Corps, I highly recommend it to anyone, really. Though right now, unfortunately, because of COVID, everyone's been evacuated. But hope we're really hoping that everyone will go back and things will move smoothly. And actually, very disappointingly, we had a camp, Chris and I and um, Musa, who's also a section leader, and some Peace Corps volunteers had planned a camp this summer that was a collaboration between my NGO and um, the NGO that Musa and I are starting that does coding education in Guinea. and Stanford and the Peace Corps. So it's going to be a bunch of um, students from very different villages across Guinea coming together in the village where Musa is living to do a coding camp. But unfortunately, because of COVID, we're not sure that's going to happen. But we're we're it will happen eventually. But for now, um, it's not happening. Yeah. Gotcha. And and so, can you tell me a bit about um, what? what you're doing as like for your master's like what is it like you know like working with Chris toward both of your two degrees yeah man Chris is the best to work for I'm sure everyone can tell <laughs> just from this um I've never met someone who who leads with so much humility and uh and empathy actually is the word I meant to say but humility as well so my master's has been up until now it's been generally I've been doing a lot of international policy work. So I'm in the international policy program, I'm actually a cyber policy concentrator. And so that means that I've thought a lot about the ways that new technologies have, have bring up new international policy and regulation questions, and especially around the regulation of uh, harm from online platforms. So there's a whole field of computer science that people might be interested in that I've learned about from my time at Stanford, which is called trust and safety. Are you familiar with that? No. So it's basically like the part, for example, if you just choose one example, like Facebook, it's mm -hmm. the part of Facebook that would try to prevent users from harm as a result of their interactions on the platform. So for example, if someone's going to, there's challenges with, child sexual exploitation on Facebook, which should, is true on every platform. I'm not trying to single out Facebook. Any platform where there's children, there's child exploitation. 
but Facebook has been very proactive about um, about finding it. <laughs> There's all kinds of technologies and policies that you can use to uh, to both preemptively find child sexual exploitation or CSAM, um, which is uh, child sexual abuse material. And also once it happens, you know, there's like relationships that have to happen with law enforcement to make sure that children are safe. And this is just one example. There's also, you know, all kinds of challenges with, um, with terrorism, for example, that would be part of a strategic response or trust and safety team at Facebook. So I have gotten really interested in those questions. There's a, uh, a research institute at Stanford called the Stanford Internet Observatory led by Alex Stamos, who was in charge of all those questions at Facebook up until he came to Stanford. He was a chief security officer. So he has exposed me to this very interesting aspect of computer science and of policy that's right on the intersection. So that's been a really enriching and interesting thing. I think I've always been motivated by the aspects of computer science that would allow me to work on really big, messy issues you know, so less about like the, the technical stuff, even though I find it really interesting, but more about the social impact stuff. And so that was really interesting in my policy degree. And then also working with government policymakers about, or who are thinking about the implications of emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing, and being kind of a bridge and a translator between those two worlds. So I've gotten to work with H.R. McMaster, who is the national security advisor to Trump for 13 months on his book on international relations. It's, it's, it was such an amazing experience. And I worked with him on the chapter on emerging technologies and cyber policy. So that's kind of my international policy chunk. But then at the same time, I've gotten to work with Chris on all this stuff. And one of the things that we did was write a paper on the future of artificial intelligence and education for UNESCO. And that was such an interesting experience because we were reflecting on the challenges and what sort of the harms that could come from expanding all education to be online. I mean, it's honestly so fascinating, Patricia, because at the time, mostly UNESCO thinks about using technology to support education in some of the poorest places around the world. And um, there's a lot of optimism around handing, you know, kids in all these villages iPads or you know, using artificial intelligence to give everyone a personalized teacher. And it's really exciting in some ways. And it's really, I think now that everyone's online, we have an opportunity to see what the real um, limitations of that are. And that's one of the things that with Code in Place, Chris and the whole team have been trying to counteract is making this whole online experience a lot more human. And that's one of the, like you go to school for so many reasons outside of just rote learning. And so the idea that you could give someone, you know, some artificial intelligence mobile phone and they'll just be in their phone all day and become some, you know, child genius. Maybe it's true. I, I, I think it's good to have good learning tools, but there's so much more that school gives kids that, that in-person interaction gives students of all, not just kids, but of all uh, walks of life. And mm -hmm. so I guess Code in Place has been part of this big experiment to try and make a human-centric online learning experience. We'll see how it goes. I hope I hope it's going well for people. If if um, and and we'll certainly love hearing everyone's feedback and trying to improve it for the future. But that was a really interesting process to get to do before, and it was actually also published in Scientific American. So if anyone's interested in reading it, I think it reads really interestingly in light of this current educational moment where so many educational experiences have moved online. 
Mm, yeah, definitely. That that is so interesting. Um, so can you tell me a bit about, let's say, like what your hopes are um, after you finish your master's degree? <laughs> like what you're hoping to do with everything that you've learned and all the projects that you've done? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess one of my main missions has been to help support students who generally don't have access to educational opportunities break into worlds that really need them. So I think the fact, have you, there's a term weird, which is Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, and mm -hmm. a majority of designers mm -hmm. in companies like Facebook, Instagram, um, are Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic designers of technological products that are um, affecting people all around the world, including in places like I serve with the Peace Corps, like Guinea. But I mean, even in the US, we've seen how these products can increase polarization and increase people's um, political divisions and even some, sometimes lead to violence. And the fact that in the US, we have, you know, some of the most attention on those issues, and it still happens in the US, makes me really scared and um, sort of frustrated with these companies for not necessarily taking into account, giving other countries the same standard of care that countries in the US get. So a huge part of that is the people building the products, not necessarily being diverse enough to understand the catalyst of violence and discrimination outside of their immediate context. So I would be so excited to help train students in like, I, I'd probably start with just <laughs> my, my collaborators and students I love in Guinea. And I also have this great collaborator in, in Musa. We've been working on some of these programs in Guinea um, to get to teach and train those students to be really solid contributors to building technologies that are going to affect people all around the world. And I think partly it's just, joyful and fun to help people learn and get jobs and stuff. But also, I think it's scary to think about countries that are fast coming online without the possibility to prepare themselves or really fully contribute to the burgeoning technological moment in their countries that could actually have harmful effects. And there's been very ominous examples in places like Myanmar, where people, there was um, a huge number of people coming online at the same time in the middle of an ethnic conflict that led to a lot of death and violence. And there were no content moderators who spoke Burmese, or there were very few. And so there's, there's a lot of challenges in doing that. And now Facebook has put a ton of energy into hiring people who speak Burmese, but then there's all these other languages. Um, a lot of the automated mechanisms that keep us safe on the internet because we're speaking in English, don't keep other people safe on the internet because they're speaking in, you know, Pular or, um, Susu or Malenke or Swahili, or Swahili, I think actually has Google Translate now, but um, I think there's a technological approach to supporting that. And there's also a educational and training approach to get people who speak those languages just working on the products. And they would never forget that those languages weren't there because it's their language and they, you know, so there's really a real need for diversity in the building of these products. Lisa and I then talked about how diversity in tech 
really helps you build cooler, better things. A really amazing student, Haja Janabu, who's, lead, who's actually the president of AJDE, which is our NGO in Guinea, in Cumbia, which is the village where I serve. She just learned this stuff so fast, and I just want to see the stuff she would build. And she just doesn't have access to getting the chance to learn this stuff. And um, I think there's really amazing examples of people coming up with, there's low-hanging fruits in certain communities for technological impact that could support their communities, but they just haven't had the chance to, like, get a tool. And even myself, like, I'm not, I'm kind of early in my journey of learning how to code. I, I really, like, I'm probably taking some of the same classes as you, Patricia, and you're a freshman. And, um, but I, you know, I don't really care. I mean, sometimes it's a little <laughs> intimidating or whatever, but most of the time I don't care because I'm trying to gain skill sets so that I can build my own creative product projects. Right. And, and I think that everyone has these, this, this, I think it's very human to want to build and create. And that if people had the chance to kind of, use this tool set in addition with their other tool sets for thinking about the way they want to impact their communities, we would just have a more rich set of creations. In the same way, I think it's important to have a lot of creative or a lot of diverse people creating art because you learn about people's experiences and learn about the human condition from all different perspectives. And I think the same thing, it's the same thing in computer science. So you have diff people, different kinds of people building different kinds of products for different kinds of um, solutions to their own issues and other people's issues and um and it just creates this big learning community i think on it like if if you buy the fact that it's important to have diverse people in coding then it's also important to if you take that kind of a you know a base assumption then it's important to have diverse people in to inspire other diverse people to come in because it can be hard to come into a field where you don't see yourself represented definitely Definitely. I always find it really exciting to like, you know, meet someone in science who also is an artist because as someone who was so creatively inclined, I sometimes felt like, oh, maybe my brain is just like slightly different than people who are really good at math or really good at science. But I think it's just different. And I honestly think like one of the reasons I enjoy teaching so much is because I'm creative and like performing and that that's something I can contribute. And it's just different than someone who maybe appreciates the, um, some of the ways you can use computer science that can keep you in solitude or something like that, or working on a team or, I don't know, there's just so many ways to engage with this. And the more people get to see different kinds of people engaging with it in different ways, the more they can find their own expression of themselves within it. That's so true. Yes, that is so true, Lisa. Okay. <laughs> so I have a quick question. Um, so my brother started showering and can you hear it? No, I can't, but I think you should keep that on the podcast. Just okay. so human. <laughs> yeah. I'm so my closet, I guess like I didn't even think of this. My um the bathroom is right next to it, I guess. And so like since I'm like sitting on the floor, the water is oh, I think I do have one kind of final question for you about mm -hmm. like everything you've talked about. Um, and like as a section leader, you bring all these diverse experiences and with your education background, but also with the different experiences that you've had, um, what, like, what do you hope your students can take away from your teaching and you just like being yourself? Well, I hope that people come away from this class feeling like they have the skills to keep learning. And I know that's how Chris thinks about it too, but to 
get, there's so many resources online, but classes like MOOCs, the traditional MOOCs, where, which is massive online open source classes, I think, and they sometimes have, you know, millions of people sign up, but usually have a 1% or so completion rate, something like that. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not quoting an exact number right now, so, but it's, it's very small. There's a huge drop off. And so I would hope that people would feel confident enough in their ability to learn new things and be ex have enough exposure to computer science and this community of people that they could be part of that one or two percent who can really be independent and in picking up their own skills now because a lot of computer science learning happens on your own. I mean, I'm getting a master's. I'm really excited to be in a specific learning environment where I have particular tasks and motivation outside of just myself and a MOOC, but I also think there's a lot that can happen individually. I mean, Moose is a great example of that. My friend that I brought up a couple times, he's done a ton of online learning and he's confident in himself to do that because he has a good base. So I would hope that students could feel that confidence to keep moving forward. But much more importantly, I hope that people, I honestly, something I'm taking away from Chris and Mehran and the whole teaching team is just joy in learning and kindness and empathy and spreading love, really. And I think this whole community has sort of picked up on the, the vibe, for lack of a better word, that, that they give off and that the whole teaching team gives off and that all the section leaders give off. And I just think it's a really beautiful thing that can happen when a bunch of people are learning together and sharing, sharing experiences and excitement and positivity at a time when things are tough. You know, there's a lot, I mean, I'm sure there are people in our community that have, in the Code in Place community that have lost loved ones during this time, that have, I know there are people that have lost jobs and are dealing with all kinds of challenges that we can't even imagine. So I hope this is just a, you know, a small positive experience amidst the global craziness and that also people can take away the fact that a bunch of people just wanted to do something positive and they're just volunteering their time. I mean, I watched a bunch of the, the section leader videos when people were applying to become section leaders and it was so beautiful. I, I almost cried during some of them because people made these five minute videos to apply to teach and they're just amazing, inspiring people from all around the world, from almost every single continent who are just wanting to share what they know during this time of global crisis and support people from all around the world. And it's just been super inspiring to see that. And I hope people can take away that sense of goodness and inspiration. Definitely. Yeah. And those are most of the questions that I had. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add or say on this podcast? I'm just excited for, to hear about all the other wonderful people in this community. I'm so happy you're doing this, Patricia. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to our first episode of Humans of Code in Place, and please stay tuned for more stories to come. We would absolutely love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions. Please email humansofcodeinplace at gmail.com, or we'll be posting a thread on Ed, so be sure to comment on that thread as well. Thank you so much, and we cannot wait to be back with another story soon.